0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation
1: I think in my case, it directly stems from my lived experience with uh, being a survivor of cancer. It fostered a curiosity in terms of, one, what cancer is, two, why it develops in some people and not others. And lastly, the idea that clinical research and medicine saved my life through clinical trials. Now I'm a physician scientist working as an oncologist, as an immunologist, trying to really change the nature of my patients and patients that I don't even see through my
2: research. In my uh, medical training, I realized that I really, really enjoyed working with critically ill patients in the ICUs uh, and trying to understand how can we uh, know who's going to become critically ill and how can we help them.
0: Brothers Eugene and Kevin Shenderov escaped with their parents from the Soviet Union shortly after being exposed to radiation from the Chernobyl explosion. They're now physician researchers whose personal experience shapes both their research and their relationship to their patients. Eugene and Kevin, this is going to be really interesting to talk with you today, because not only is your work in immunology so advanced and so far-reaching, you have a personal story that throws it all into relief in a way that few scientists do, I think. First of all, your brothers. And secondly, you were very close to Chernobyl when it exploded, right? How, how close were you? Well, thank you for having us, Alan. Uh,
1: we were about 250 kilometers from Kiev. So overall from Chernobyl, it's uh, unfortunately not too far away. And we had one of the first uh, acid rain falls out in our region.
0: And Eugene, your family didn't hear anything from the Russian government about what was going on. Yeah, unfortunately, back then, the secrecy of the
1: Soviet Union was such that I believe my dad, who actually worked for uh, the city as partly as a radiation safety officer, it sounds, um, didn't hear... From any of the folks in the city. Rather, he heard it from a BBC broadcast coming into Russia about there being an explosion in Chernobyl.
0: And you developed a pediatric cancer from that fallout, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I and many other children in. Uh, that part of the country and, uh, in Chernobyl, I uh, developed various, uh, cancers and, uh, I developed pediatric lymphocytical leukemia, ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia, ALL.
0: How old were you when the
1: disaster occurred? So it, uh, the disaster occurred in 86. And so I was born in 83. So I was three years old. Um, and I was diagnosed at age five after having, um, Some for a a little while, mysterious symptoms of easy bruising and bleeding from my nose and things like that. So it took a little while for my parents to figure out what was
0: going on. Kevin, are you older or younger than Eugene?
2: I'm uh, three years younger than Eugene.
0: So did you get sick from the Chernobyl incident as well?
2: Fortunately, not nearly as ill as Eugene. But uh, when we came to the U.S., I developed colitis, which... Uh, Looking back, my parents and the doctors I saw probably think was radiation colitis related to the disaster. I I hadn't been born yet at the time, but my mom was pregnant with me, and uh, so I was exposed to the radiation that way. And so I had colitis for several years, but fortunately uh, was treated for that, and that hasn't been a problem for many years.
0: So you, you had to get out of the Soviet Union. And you were escaping not only the, the fallout from Chernobyl, but the fallout from anti-Semitism. And everybody who ever escaped Germany and, and Russia always came out on the last train or the last boat. But you, you pretty much literally did, didn't you? Yeah, we
1: left. Uh, I remember my parents uh, wrapping up food in the middle of the night, hopping on a bus. And then we were took a train that was so filled, my parents had to th- Put us through the windows we had to sleep on one of those gurneys that holds luggage was with uh, blankets on top of it was what our makeshift beds were for the kids
0: so you got to america this smart family and and my impression is that your parents helped you become even more curious asking you how things worked
2: yeah our, our parents did a really amazing job fostering curiosity in us And uh, just one example of that is we would be walking in a park and they would say, do you have any idea how water gets to the top of a tree from the roots uh, in order to keep the leaves moist? And we would say, no, how does it do that? And then they would have a great way of explaining the science of how, you know, by capillary action, water gets to the top of a tree. And it was just so, uh, you know, such an epiphany to understand how things worked and realize that there was just so much intricacy and beauty that was beyond what we would see.
0: And as a result, you were really primed. Eugene, what, you were working in a lab even before you finished
1: high school, weren't you? Yeah, actually, both Kevin and I, thanks to our first mentor uh, at Sloan Kettering, Alan Houghton, uh, I started working in a lab as a sophomore in high school. And uh Kevin started working in a lab as well. How did you get into the interests that you pursue now? I think in my case, it directly stems from my lived experience with uh, being a survivor of cancer and the fact that it fostered a curiosity in terms of, one, what cancer is, two, why it develops in some people and not others. And lastly, the idea that clinical research and medicine... saved my life through clinical trials. Now I'm a physician scientist working as an oncologist, as an immunologist, trying to really change the nature of my patients and patients that I don't
0: even see through my research. So being a physician scientist means that you're not only researching possible cures, but you're treating patients who have those diseases. Does that give you a a different perspective than if you were just a bench scientist, never contacting the patient himself or herself?
1: Immensely so. That is a great point. Uh, When I see the patient in front of me and we can have a discussion of their hopes, their dreams, their side effects of the treatment, it puts into stark relief that there is a person who needs to be given the proper care in order to, for however long they have, achieve the quality of life that is best and that the things that are being developed as a researcher uh, can be translated directly into how they impact
2: someone.
0: Kevin, you, your work branched off, it's still immunological, but it's a different flavor, isn't it?
2: It is. Uh, so, you know, both of us started scientifically in very similar places. As Eugene mentioned, we were both incredibly lucky to work with Dr. Houghton uh, and his lab. And both of us fell in love with immunology there, and both of us were incredibly lucky to have such wonderful role mentors who showed us the immense beauty and power of science and medicine and how they could be combined. And so both of us, uh, I think, developed that same central focus, uh, but my research uh, went a little bit of a different direction. So during my PhD, I worked on uh, vaccine immunology and understanding how to make vaccines that uh, promote certain kinds of immune responses. And then uh, in my uh, medical training, I realized that I really, really enjoyed working with critically ill patients in the ICUs and trying to understand how can we know who's going to become critically ill and how can we help them. And you know, in the ICUs, we see patients who have a lot of issues related to their immune system. So one of the very common conditions we see in the ICU is called sepsis. So when someone has an infection and their immune system basically becomes very, very revved up, doesn't respond the way it should, they can become incredibly sick from the infection. And we don't really understand how or why the immune system is not acting the way it should or how to uh, basically get it back to its normal function. We treat sepsis with fluids, antibiotics, trying to support people through it, but we really don't know how to fix the aberrant immune response. And so those kinds of questions just really appeal to me, trying to understand these incredibly sick patients in the ICU, how can we help them? How can we fix the underlying problem rather than just trying to support them, treat the infection, but not treat the underlying problem with the immune system?
0: I had sepsis once. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sure glad you're working on a cure for it because it's no fun. Gene, I understand, and I'd love to hear your your explanation of it, that you've been working with artificial intelligence to solve a cancer problem. How, how, how does that work? Sure. Artificial intelligence, I think, is just, a,
1: depending on how you use it, potentially an important tool we have within research field. And so in my research group at Johns Hopkins, one of the things my lab has is a focus on trying to figure out Within cancers that we work on, within immunological problems, better ways to potentially do diagnosis of a disease because one of the problems, given my background, is access to quality care. So that's just another interest given our background as refugees, the idea of equitable access. And so we have a paper that's coming out hopefully soon where we show that we could design a artificial intelligence that can actually recognize one form of very rare subcancer called acute promyelocytic leukemia from another form of leukemia that's less of a medical emergency called acute myeloid leukemia, AML. And uh, this potentially allows us to deploy it then to low-resource settings whether it be in parts of the U.S. that don't have access to the clinicians at Johns Hopkins who see this incredibly rare cancer that has an incidence of like 600 to 800 cases a year in the U.S., or into sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where there may not be a clinician for hundreds of miles around an oncologist. And so that is just a way to use the resources of uh, one of my backgrounds, which is uh, programming, um, to better utilize the data that we have within the research areas, but incredibly excited about that potential.
0: Tell me about your work, Kevin. How is that progressing?
2: The main focus of my work during my fellowship, so I'm doing a fellowship in pulmonary critical care medicine, uh, is looking at basically the immunology of uh, lung injury. So one of the things that uh, unfortunately often brings people to the ICU is their lungs get injured either because of sepsis or because of some other process uh, that causes their lungs to get very inflamed uh, and damaged. And these people often will not be able to breathe on their own. They'll require a ventilator, breathing machine for support, and their lungs will fill up with fluid and inflammatory cells. And we again, unfortunately, we don't really understand exactly why this occurs or how to treat it effectively. So care for this condition, which we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, is mostly supportive. Uh, we put people on the ventilator. We try to dry out their lungs as much as possible. Uh, we, tr- you know, we try to give them um, other medicines to keep them on life support, essentially, and give their lungs time to heal. But what is known about this is that this is, uh, again, a very inflammatory condition, uh, and there are abnormal immune responses that have been shown to contribute to uh, this lung injury. And so people have tried using various anti-inflammatory medications to treat uh, ARDS, this uh, lung injury, and unfortunately, it really hasn't worked in most cases. So we're trying to take a different approach to understanding what is going wrong with the immune response and trying to figure out a different angle to control this abnormal immune response by looking at metabolic pathways in uh, models of lung injury. So we're using mouse models to look at what is happening in mice with injured lungs in terms of their metabolic pathways. And we have some, you know, preliminary data that trying to alter some of these metabolic pathways can actually reduce lung injury and hopefully you know, make the mice survive better if they develop uh, something like this ARDS condition.
0: Hey, either Eugene or Kevin, do you foresee that we'll have to solve these immune-related problems one disease at a time, or is there a hope for a, some kind of holy grail? Pardon me for mentioning the holy grail to two Jews. Rather than solving it one disease at a time, is there one a one-size-fits-all solution that might be possible? That's a great question. Unfortunately, I would say that there
1: probably isn't a one-size-fits-all because a lot of different cancers are really independently their own diseases. And actually, my main focus in my uh, research lab and clinical work, because I treat prostate cancer patients, is that one of the realizations we're coming to is that recently one of the main ways that we have really had a revolution in cancer therapy has been the idea of immunotherapy and of unleashing the cells of the immune system within a patient person's own body to fight their cancer. This was awarded a Nobel Prize in medicine recently, and it works through checkpoint inhibitors. And so, for example, in lung, um, one class of checkpoints has been very useful and in melanoma. But it turns out in prostate cancer, those same checkpoints don't really work very well. And it hasn't been understood why. And one of the the hypotheses, thoughts that I work on in my lab really, is that maybe we're targeting the wrong uh, checkpoint, the wrong target that we need to overcome to get to your point that one size doesn't fit all. And in this case, it's a different target called B7H3. um, And it just happens to be something that's very much expressed in the prostate, whereas some of the other targets are not. So maybe physically we're targeting the wrong one, and then we're doing clinical trial work to try to, both in the bench, at in the research lab, and with our patients, um, treat them with, targ- with antibodies against this target to see if, again, we can target the right immune pathway within prostate cancer. So in summary, unfortunately... We won't have a one-size-fit-all, but I think fortunately we're rapidly approaching the era of personalized medicine where we're going to be able to pick the right drugs for the right patient at the right time.
2: And if I can quickly add, I think that one one of the most incredible things to me about the immune system is how in the vast majority of people, the vast majority of time, it basically is able to perform an incredibly challenging and you would think almost impossible task which is to know what is foreign and dangerous and react to it and get rid of it and then know what is ours and safe and respond appropriately to that. And, you know, we live with so many microbes in our lungs, in our guts, all over our skin, And the immune system has to be able to live with those and know that most of the time those are fine uh, and really only identify the pathogens. And to do that, it's had to develop all these incredibly interesting mechanisms of identifying self and non-self, dangerous and non-dangerous. And because of that, there are a lot of ways, unfortunately, in which things can go wrong. Uh, And as a result, there are a lot of different ways that Uh, you can target the immune system to try to fix things, but it also makes it very complicated. Uh, And so, as Eugene alluded to, there isn't one on or off switch. There are just so many that you really have to understand which ones are abnormal in a particular condition and target the right ones.
0: When we come back from our break, brothers Eugene and Kevin Shenderoff tell me how their work extends beyond both the lab and the bedside, to improving access to health care for those with limited resources. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Eugene and Kevin Shenderov. What I love about what we've been talking about in this conversation is not only is your work important at all, but it's important to people who don't have the same advantages as others in our society, and the, the society of the world. And I'm wondering where you developed that, because in addition to being great scientists, you also have this, as far as I can tell, a very strong humanitarian bent. Where do you think you developed this sense of helping the less fortunate, the less resourceful?
1: I, I think that definitely benefited from our parents' uh, In inst- stilling in us a sense that as immigrants and given our uh, sort of history of with myself getting sick with with cancer and being told in the former Soviet Union, we don't have the resources to treat you, that it's hard for us to look at any form of uh, inequality or equity issues or uh, injustice and and as physicians especially with hippocratic oath and not try to do something about it to the best of our abilities and so i think we do everything both um within our scope of practice as physician scientists but also within our scope as a good physician scientist also has to be as a good human being a good activist for their patients
0: and an example of that seems to be the charm city project Tell me about that. What is that? So Charm City Care Connection
1: was a involvement during medical school at Hopkins where some classmates and I realized that at the time we had a few skills, clinically speaking, because we were still medical students, but we had a shared interest in trying to do good for humanity. And uh, we decided we would try to work on starting a free clinic in a sense, but we went one step further. And instead of doing a student-run free clinic, we wanted to really tackle the idea that many individuals in our societies, including people who lived blocks away from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, had no access to healthcare at all. And we tried to understand why that was, and we tried to come up with a model, and that's why it's called Charm City Care Connection rather than clinic, of trying to in the pre-emergency room setting, connect patients to healthcare resources, whether that's health literacy, screening for diabetes or hypertension, or even signing folks up to insurance. And so we wanted to really give individuals the tools in order to actually enter the healthcare system and then see providers and doctors like myself and Kevin in our future lives,
0: because if they can't even reach us, then we can't help them at all. Well, I'm grateful to your parents and I'm grateful to you for what you've all come up with. They came up with you and you're coming up with great stuff. Well, our conversation has to come to an end in a minute. But before we stop, we always have seven quick questions that we ask and you can take turns answering them. What was the first thing you remember being curious about at all? Kevin, you look like you can think of something.
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot of this goes back to our parents asking us questions. I, I have a vivid memory of us driving in a car and our dad asking us, how does the motor that uh, makes this car work function? And I just had no idea. And then he explained it again incredibly vividly. And it was just so mind-blowing to hear that a car has this motor which actually works through a relatively simple principle. I just thought, Wow amazing that uh, there is something that even I can understand driving this car.
0: How about you, Eugene?
1: I think for me, it was to see a clock dial moving. And when I asked my dad, wow, how, how does it move? I was very young at the time. He said, well, if you want to know, just take it
0: apart. <laughs> and luckily, it was a very cheap <laughs> watch, so I took it apart. You actually did. You took it apart? Wow. Okay, what made you want to be a scientist? I
1: think in my case, uh, I alluded to that earlier, it was unfortunately my experience with being a patient, really, and so wanting to both understand the disease and treat the disease. How about you, Kevin?
2: Definitely Eugene's experience was very formative in seeing what he went through and hoping to be able to help uh, future uh, people with illnesses like that, but also the mentorship and having the opportunity to work in a lab and realizing just how incredible it was.
0: What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most?
2: I think that there's so many incredible things about research, but I would say the most central part is coming up with a question that I think is important and relevant and coming up with the way to answer it. Because coming up with good questions and good experiments to answer them, I just find so joyful and so much fun.
1: How about you, Eugene? So definitely echo Kevin in terms of it's an unbridled joy to really ask a question and be one of the first, if not the first people in the humanity to ever potentially get the answer to it from a scientific curiosity perspective. That being said, also by doing clinical research, I would say it's the interaction with the patient and potentially that the therapy that they're getting, that's a new sort of research effort can really change their lives in a manner that before this couldn't have happened. And so having the tangible feel that one is impacting the person directly in front of you.
0: It occurs to me as you talk about this that coming up with the question is a creative act and so is trying to figure out how to answer that question. You have to be, you have to have an active imagination to say, I'm going to test for this but I might not be taking into account that or that or that.
2: Absolutely.
0: How do you know when you've got enough of those covered that you can go ahead and do the experiment?
2: One way is to try to poke holes in your own argument and think, okay, I think it's this. Let me think about all the ways in which this could be wrong and make sure that I have had the right experimental setup, the right controls to make sure that all of these other possibilities have been addressed. And the other way is to show it to colleagues.
0: And they're happy to point out to you your problems.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's so much fun to go over data with other scientists. Eugene and I have the wonderful luck of having each other, but uh, all our other colleagues as well. And just showing them, hey, I did this experiment. This is what I found. I think it's this. Do you think I'm right or do you think I'm crazy?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fourth question. As a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? I think the, for me, it's when a
1: large question is asked and I and my colleagues were able to really show that I think what we thought was a principle clinically behind the trial seem to be the scenario and when we could actually extend that into further line development. Um, as a someone who's starting on this road uh, quite recently to have that milestone of the fact that something that's a research clinical tool that's translated into a patient therapeutic might actually work is just a feeling that, their reason of waking up early in the morning or going to sleep late or just everything is meaningful in a sense that you've come full circle. There's an idea, there's an implementation
0: of it, and then you, again, you can impact someone. Kevin, can you remember a best moment you've ever had?
2: You know, it's always difficult to pinpoint one specific moment, but I think one of the biggest joys of being a physician scientist is really being able to see the connection between the medicine and the science. And uh, I've been working on lung injury in mice, uh, as I mentioned. And so it's really uh, fun and exciting to see results in mice. But one of the uh, opportunities that we had recently was to start uh, obtaining samples from people uh, who have a lung injury, the condition ARDS that I mentioned, and really seeing the possibility of testing similar hypotheses in both the mice and the people with the same condition, to me, is just so exhilarating mm. and just so promising as to you know, ways we can hopefully help these people. Uh, because obviously it's nice to cure mice, but far, far more exciting if we can actually help people with this condition.
0: On the other hand, it must be frustrating for a scientist to realize he hasn't been able to help people, but he's got much healthier mice. must be a little, a little frustrating.
2: Yeah, one of our mentors uh, used to love to say, it's very easy to cure cancer in a test tube. It's very easy to cure cancer in a mouse. It's way harder to do it in a human.
0: (laughs) Can you remember what your worst moment has been? I think
1: for me, the worst moment is when, and again, I think we both experienced when we've done an experiment and it fails, and that always feels bad. But given the fact that we treat patients now, it's when you give them an experimental therapy and you find out that potentially they didn't benefit from it, or even worse, um, a patient who has significant side effects. So I definitely have experienced where a patient has had bad side effects, but their cancer hasn't really benefited from the agent, and you just feel like you need to go back to the drawing board. So it's, it's unfortunately part of the process, but it's humbling
0: to know that you can't always help everyone. Can you learn something from the idea that the mouse benefited from the medication, but the patient, the human patient, didn't? The difference between the two, does that give you any information? And that is a challenge. Yes,
1: often we try to understand the differences, but sometimes it's hard because of just the biology complexities between interspecies work. And so sometimes we don't really quite know what it was between the mouse and the human that may have showed us that there was promise and then in the human it doesn't.
0: So here's our next to last question. What gives you confidence?
2: I I think that uh, what gives me confidence is just realizing the incredible power of scientific inquiry in, you know, making incredible advances in, uh, in both scientifically, but also more importantly, medically, Uh, you know, the COVID vaccines are an amazing example of just how quickly scientific progress can be made. Uh, But that's just one example. We've seen immunotherapy as a huge paradigm shift in the treatment of cancer. And so just seeing that these huge changes can happen in medical care in our lifetime, in the course of a year, in the case of the vaccines, just gives me so much confidence that as a scientific and medical community, there are so many other great things we can do. How
0: about you, Eugene? Agree with Kevin,
1: as always. (laughs) And uh,
2: to add to that,
1: I think that my, again, my lived experience of having been myself on a clinical trial that saved my life uh, really showed me for the rest of my life that clinical research can have an impact on a person. Obviously, For me, I wouldn't be alive if I hadn't been treated, if I potentially wasn't treated with an experimental regimen. And then also just, uh, you know, support can be both sort of in the lab or in the clinic, but it can also be in our personal lives. I have an incredibly supportive uh, spouse who's also a physician herself, actually an infectious disease battling on the front lines of COVID at the moment here at Hopkins Um, and delightful kids who make it a delight to work every day and come back from work to see sort of the next generation
0: that makes this all worthwhile. Our last and kind of big question, how do you think we can help more people have a love of science? I think that science as a word can seem
1: strange, distant, and potentially not something that's tangible for a lot of people at the crucial steps, stages, and steps in their lives when they need to fall in love with the idea of inquiring to ask a question and get an answer um, when there might be other priorities in their lives. And so definitely within school systems, there needs to be a focus on demonstrations of, as our parents sort of did for us, about what is this, or can you explain that rather than sort of memorizing, etc. And of course, always the communication of science. I mean, in a sense, this is what we're doing right now. We're discussing the science that Kevin and I are involved in, hopefully with the idea of sharing it so that individuals can hear it and say, hey, I can do that. Hey, I, I find that this is interesting um, and demystifies it. And I think that's it. Demystifying something that shouldn't be a mystery in the first place. Your
0: parents' technique is the way it sounds to me that gets the kid to be curious, to actually imagine that there's something going on that the kid doesn't yet understand. What could that be? Rather than telling them the answer to the question that's never been asked. What do you think, Kevin? What, How can we get more people to love science?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's all about making science more accessible and exciting. And I think that that starts at a young age. And we were incredibly fortunate that our parents did that, our teachers did that. Uh, I had some really wonderful science teachers uh, who just made it seem so exciting and, uh, you know, not at all complicated or scary. And I think that many people, unfortunately, get turned off because they think, oh, science is really difficult and I'm never going to understand it. And making it something that is interesting and something that relates to everyday life rather than some complicated equations that, you know, many people think they'll never understand is just so important. And of course that starts early on in life, but I think even for, you know, adults and for communication everyday about science i think that it's really on us as physicians and scientists to talk in a way that people can understand and that people can see as accessible because otherwise people will not want to listen to what we have to say
0: and i so much appreciate your ability your willingness to share your own personal stories with us you you have you share a fascinating life story and it actually explains some of your own interest is at the core of your own interest in changing the world through science. Thank you. And thank you for doing that today with me. I really appreciate it. It was really fun to talk with you. Our pleasure.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity, Alan. It's been a really, really fun discussion. Uh, uh, And for Eugene and I to do it together has just been so exciting and so fun. So thank you again.
0: Has been for me too. Thank you. Thank you both. Our pleasure. Thank you, Alan. This has been Science, Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Eugene Shanderoff is instructor of oncology and Kevin is instructor in medicine, both at Johns Hopkins Medicine in Baltimore. They were each enrolled in the NIH Oxford-Cambridge Scholars Program, an accelerated doctoral training program for students committed to biomedical research careers. You can find out more about the Charm City Care Connection at charmcitycareconnection.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with a remarkable young woman with a crippling muscle-wasting disease who's working hard to find a cure. She's Audrey Winkle says, and her passion for science is captivating.
2: I think there are a few things that motivate me. Definitely having the disease drives a lot of that passion, I think. Um, And, you know, having friends and having, being so close with the disease community definitely provides a lot of motivation. Um, But also I just, I really like science. When I'm in the lab, I don't really think about the fact that I have SMA. I mean, I mean, on the one hand, of course, it affects every part of my life. So, of course, I know that I have it. But you know, when I'm doing my science, I'm just thinking about the science.
0: Audrey Winkle says, "Next time on Science Clear and Vivid." For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit allenalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter, at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.